This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. I am Dustin Smith, and I will be your host. This week's episode is episode 281, entitled Exploring the Triad in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6. So we are continuing our series that seeks to explore and better understand the various passages in the New Testament where a triad appears. Usually this triad is in the form of God, Jesus, and the Spirit appearing together either in a sentence or in a short span of verses. Now, some interpreters will point to this evidence and they will conclude that this is unambiguous, clear, first century evidence that the writers of the New Testament believed and taught the doctrine of the triune God. Others will point out that this is historically anachronistic and they will reject that such interpretation would even be possible for a writer in the first century. Now, over the past two weeks, we've examined two of the most famous triads in the New Testament. We looked at Matthew 28:19, and we looked at Romans 15, verse 30. And we observed in those passages that the doctrine of the Trinity, as it was formulated in the 4th and 5th centuries with its specific language and definitions, this doctrine was completely unknown to both Matthew and to the Apostle Paul. Both of these authors were unitary monotheists, meaning that they understood that the true God is a single person and that Jesus was the son of this true God. Therefore, what does the triadic reference in this week's episode in 1 Corinthians, what does it mean for Paul's original audience? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at the triad in the first letter to the Corinthians. So our passage, as we've mentioned, is in chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. This is actually three sentences, but you'll get the sense of how the flow operates. So starting in verse 4, Paul says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And... There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. That's 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6. So there you have it. We have reference to the Spirit, we have reference to the Lord, and we have a reference to God. Obviously, Paul is teaching the doctrine of the Trinity, and this is something that he has held and that he taught all of his followers clear, and there's no argument to be said to the contrary. I'm not convinced, and I doubt that my listeners are convinced as well. Now, what can we say about this particular passage? Well, we could see that in verses 4, 5, and 6, there is a constant refrain. The refrain repeats the phrase, the same. And the passage indicates that while there is a sense of the same, taking place, 
this is in light of the fact that there is clearly diversity in the body of Christ. Well, in Paul's case, diversity within the community of believers at Corinth. Now, they are diverse in the sense that they have different giftings, but all of these giftings come from the same spirit. While these Corinthians differ in their positions of ministry, they all serve the same Lord. And this, of course, is the Lord Jesus. And we do need to remember that Corinth was a Roman colony. And so we always have to keep in mind that Paul's emphasis on Jesus being Lord is additionally subverting the lordship of the Lord who is ruling from Rome. So to say that Jesus is Lord is to clearly indicate that Caesar isn't. And of course, verse 6, we see that God is the one who works all things in all persons. And so while we have the reference to the same Spirit, the same Lord, and the same God, the reference to the same God further defines this God as the source of all of these workings. The three sentences are not treated equally. There is much more emphasis on the same God. The same God, of course, is the one who is providing all these things. And of course, by saying that God is the one who works, this indicates both in English and in Greek that God is a single person, not two or three persons. Now, when we look at this passage, it's important to note that it talks about the Spirit, the Lord, Jesus, and God. And we also have to remember that the doctrine of the Trinity teaches that the one God consists of three persons, namely the Father, Son, and Spirit. But Paul, on the other hand, is here talking about the one God, the Lord Jesus, and the Spirit. This description here in 1 Corinthians 12 is not even the Trinity's own definition of the three persons. Paul's definition here distinguishes Jesus from God quite clearly, meaning that Jesus isn't God, and it also refers to this God as the one who works all things in all persons, indicating that the one God is the source of everything that's taking place. So what other clues concerning God, Jesus, and the Spirit might we gather from exploring 1 Corinthians as a whole? Meaning if we set 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6 within the context of the entire letter, what sort of conclusions would we naturally draw if we're not coming to the text with our own presuppositions? This will move us to our second point. Point number two, what 1 Corinthians teaches about God. So in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says that God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's 1 Corinthians 1.9. And so what we see here is that the faithful God has a Son. So if this passage is indicating that Jesus is God's Son, more specifically, quote, his Son, end quote, then God must be the Father alone. If God has a son, then God must be the father. And of course, by describing God as his, meaning that the son is his son, then this is 
a singular reference indicating that the faithful God, of course, is one person, not two or three persons. Moving along in chapter 3, verse 23, Paul says that you, referring to the believers, you all belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. 1 Corinthians 3.23. Paul is indicating a hierarchy here. Christ is the head of the believers, but Christ is subordinate to God. Not only is Jesus distinguished from God, but Jesus is subordinate to God. God, of course, is the head of Christ, and of course, naturally, by extension, God is the head of the believers. Now, in chapter 8, verse 4, we have an interesting reference of the true God when Paul contrasts God with idols. 1 Corinthians 8, 4, Paul says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. Now, in this phrase, at the end of the verse, there is no God but one, we can actually look a little more closely and we can pull out from the Greek some very interesting points. The Greek here says, oti uvis theos e meis. More specifically, there is no one who is God except one, namely one person. It's not one thing or one God. It's that there is no one who is God except one person. And of course, Paul is contrasting this from other idols that some claim refer to various gods. Now, Paul, in contrasting idolatrous worship, he's going to define for the Corinthians what, of course, they already know, but he's making the point that the true God is only one person. And then a few verses later, in verse 6, Paul defines this one God much more clearly. He says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. So here Paul tells everybody his definition of God. And he doesn't say that there is one God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. He says there is one God, the Father. And then he indicates that the Father is the creator of all things. He says, the Father from whom are all things. The Father is the creator of all things. That's what makes him the Father. That's what makes him the guy in charge. And of course, the believers exist for him, indicating that the one God is a single person with the singular reference. So Paul's not teaching the doctrine of the Trinity. He had the opportunity to if he wanted to. If he wanted to say, for us there is one God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, he could have said that, but he didn't. He indicates that for Christians, the one God is the Father, which continues Paul's Jewish monotheistic faith. Monotheism has not been redefined in Christianity. It has been reaffirmed. And then in chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says something similar to what we saw earlier in chapter 3, verse 23. Paul says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Chapter 11, verse 3. Again, we have a clear, unambiguous hierarchy. We can see that God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of a woman. 
Now, it's likely in this passage that man and woman refer to the husband and the wife, but what is clear is that Christ is the head of these human beings and God is the head of Christ. God is distinguished from Christ, they are not the same, and Christ is clearly subordinate to God. So we have quite a lot to see here about God. God is a single person, God is the Father alone, and God is not co-equal with the Son. This moves us to our third point, what 1 Corinthians teaches about the Son. Paul has a lot of interesting things to say about Jesus in 1 Corinthians. So in chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says, To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is 1 Corinthians 1.24. So we could see that Christ functions as the extended power of God in some capacity, but more importantly, we can see that Christ is described as God's wisdom. Paul repeats this a few verses later in verse 30. Paul says, By this doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. 1 Corinthians 1.30. So Paul is applying the role and the characteristics of God's wisdom, a personification in the Old Testament. And Paul is taking those things and he's now applying them to Jesus, indicating that Jesus is now the locus of God's wise activity with his creation. Now in chapter 15, we can see a lot about Paul's understanding of Jesus. Paul will talk about an important part of the gospel message, starting in verse 3 of chapter 15. Paul says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5. So what we can see here is that Jesus is someone who died, meaning he was a mortal. It's not saying that, well, part of him died, or half of him died, or the hypothetical only man part died, but the God part didn't. Christ died, and then what happened to him? He was buried, not that his body was buried. He himself was buried. He himself was raised. There's that passive tense there indicating that God is the one who raised Jesus. And of course, Jesus appeared to Peter and to the twelve. So Jesus is a mortal. Jesus is someone who died. Jesus is someone who was raised from the dead by someone other than Jesus. And this, of course, makes Jesus part of God's creation. That is mortal, and now he has been immortalized by God raising Jesus from the dead. In verses 21 through 22 of chapter 15, we get some more very important information. Paul says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That's chapter 15, verses 21 through 22. Paul sees that Adam is a type of Christ, and in doing so, he indicates that Jesus is a human being. He's a human being like Adam. Adam is the man by whom death came into the world, and Jesus is the man by whom the resurrection of the dead is going to take place. So, in Adam, all are going to find death, and in Christ, all are going to be made alive. 
And so Jesus functioned as the antitype for Adam. But in doing so, Paul says that both of them are human beings. They're members of the human race. They're men. And then in verse 28, Paul indicates that at the end of the process of the kingdom, when all things are subjected to him, that is to Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. So Jesus is bringing all things into subjection to himself, but when this has taken place, then even the Son is going to be subjected by God, so that God, of course, is going to be the one who is in charge of all things. Indicating that, again, like it was with Adam, human beings are going to be the vice regents of God's creative order. So what do we see about Jesus? Well, we see that he functions as the wisdom of God. He's a mortal. He's someone who died because he's a human being. He's just like Adam. He was raised from the dead by God. He's subordinate to God. And he's going to be subjected to God for all eternity in the kingdom of God. Let's move to our fourth point, what 1 Corinthians teaches about the Spirit. We've looked at God. We've looked at Jesus. Now we can look at the Spirit. In chapter 2, verse 4, Paul indicates that my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That's chapter 2, verse 4. So here, Paul's preaching is a demonstration of God's Spirit, which is further defined as power. The Spirit, of course, is the extension of God's power to the world. You don't get the impression here that the demonstration of the Spirit is the third person within a triune God. It's just that the Spirit, of course, is the extension of God's powerful activity in the world. A few verses later, in verse 11, Paul says, Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except for the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except for the spirit of God. That's chapter 2, verse 11. And so we can see that the spirit here is likened unto the spirit that human beings actually have. And that spirit inside of someone understands the thoughts of human beings. You know, the spirit that I have inside me is helping to understand my own thought process, but that's not a separate person inside me, as if I'm actually two persons. In the same way, the spirit of God is not a separate person inside of the one God. And we can also see that the spirit here is described as the spirit of God. It's God's spirit. It belongs to God. It's not God the Holy Spirit. It's the spirit that belongs to God. Now, chapter 3, verse 16 tells us more about the spirit of God. It says, don't you know that you, second person plural, are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? Again, second person plural. That's 1 Corinthians 3, 16. This indicates, of course, that the Spirit of God is dwelling by the extension of God's presence in the temple community of believers. This is not a surprise to anyone who's familiar with the way that God, in his Spirit and his glory, has operated in the midst of temple communities in the Hebrew Bible. 
So at the end of the book of Exodus in chapter 40, the spiritual glory of the Lord came down and inhabited the tabernacle. Once the tabernacle was set aside and the actual Jerusalem temple was built in 1 Kings chapter 8, we can see that that temple is celebrated with the glory of God coming down and dwelling within the temple. And it was believed that the presence of God was there in the Holy of Holies. But through the disobedience and the sinfulness of the nation of Israel, that spirit, the glory of God, left the temple according to the visions in Ezekiel chapters 10 through 11. But now we can see that God has created a new temple community, not with actual walls and brick and mortar, but as a temple community of the faithful people of God. And now God extends his presence again to be among his people. And this is how the Spirit of God dwells in you. It's important to remember that the word you here, while ambiguous in English, is unambiguous in Greek. It is second person plural. It's not every single person receiving the Spirit, according to this verse. It's that the body of believers possesses the Spirit of God. Moving along, in chapter 12, verse 11, Paul says that the one and same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. That's chapter 12, verse 11. Now, there is a bit of confusion when it comes to this verse. We can see that the Spirit is working all these things because we've seen that the Spirit is the extension of God's presence in the community of believers, and also the Spirit is the extension of God's power. So Spirit energizes, it empowers, and it gifts the believers to function as God's new creation. And the Spirit is distributing to each person individually just as he wills. Now this he is not a reference to the Spirit, and the he, of course, is not a reference to each individual believer. The believer doesn't will or desire or give the purpose of what the Spirit is supposed to do. The Spirit, of course, is not a conscious person distinct from God that has this will. The him here is reference to God. It's God who is doing this by extension of his Spirit. We can confirm this because we can see that the will or the desire is belonging to God in the opening verse of 1 Corinthians, where Paul says that he is called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. God is the one who has his own will, his desire, his purpose, and God is the one who is working all things in all persons, according to chapter 12, verse 6, and have already seen in chapter 8, verse 6, that the Father is the creator of all things. So the Father is the creator of all things, and now he is the sustainer of all things, but he does this sustaining work through the power of his extended spirit, which is his presence and his power extended in the lives of his faithful people. So in conclusion, what have we learned from 1 Corinthians? Well, we've already seen that God is the Father alone. He is the only one who is God. God, of course, is a single person, one person, not three persons. And we've seen that God is the head of Christ, and God raised Jesus from the dead. What have we learned about Jesus? Well, Jesus is a human being. He's a man. He's a member of the human race. He's the antitype of the first human, Adam. Jesus is mortal, 
susceptible to death. Of course, he died. It's indicated by the fact that he died, and God, of course, someone distinct from Jesus, had to raise Jesus from the dead. In 1 Corinthians, Jesus frequently distinguished from God. You would never get the impression that the two are actually the same person or the same being. And we've already seen that Paul applies the roles and characteristics of God's wisdom to the risen Jesus, indicating that Jesus is now the true locus of God's wise activity among his creation. What about the Spirit? Well, the Spirit is the extended power of God. The Spirit belongs to God, but it's not a distinct person alongside God. Spirit is also the extended presence of God. Formerly, that presence was extended in the tabernacle and then in Solomon's temple, but now that presence is now present among the temple community of believers. The Spirit also manifests charismatic gifts in the Corinthian community, demonstrating, of course, that the age to come has broken into the present in the lives of God's new creation people. So this, of course, would indicate that 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6, this triad is not a reference to the doctrine of the triune God. We need much more nuance to explain this particular passage. What we can say for sure is that the doctrine of the Trinity is not being taught in this passage. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we continue to explore these triads within the New Testament, the passages that talk about God, Jesus, and the Spirit, so that we can better understand what they are actually saying, as opposed to writing them off and saying, well, they don't mean this or that. Next week, we'll look closely at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, where God, Jesus, and the Spirit are again mentioned together as Paul brings the letter to a close. Is Paul going to introduce the doctrine of the Trinity in the very final breath within his letter? I think it's unlikely, but we'll see in our next episode, so please look forward to it. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for free by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes, by giving us an honest review on iTunes, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends on social media. You can follow us on Twitter. And if you'd like to offer a donation to help keep the podcast on the air, you can check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.